April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Excerpt from The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back, everyone. Again, this week will be a glimpse into the Magnus Fellowship, this time with Dr. John Free's course, The Wasteland Revisited, T.S. Eliot's Diagnosis of Modernity. Enjoy this glimpse into week one. Very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Larissa. Larissa has been helping me. She's been heroic on the East Coast, helping me uh, get things set up here. Um, I've been a, a fellow at the Institute for some years now, but um, this is the first course I've actually I've actually taught. Um, I don't know if any of you took uh, my wife Helen's courses. She did two on Tolkien with one more one more to follow. So uh, so welcome to this. Um, I, I think uh, normally I will I will lecture some and then. Uh, we can interrupt the lecture with questions and comments as you, as you have them. Feel free to to jump in. Um, um, if you if you've done your part so far and read through the poem at least once, um, you're um, you're probably uh, somewhat confused, no, um, befuddled, flummoxed, maybe frustrated. Um, my first word of uh, caution to you is. Uh, is don't don't be worried. This is a very very difficult work, and chances are, if you've studied it in high school or college, you've spent maybe one or two classes on it, which is not nearly enough to get to the to get to the meaning uh, of the poem. And at the beginning, I I will touch on four uh, general topics. Uh, first, the historical context of the poem, which is important. It's now the centenary. It was written 100 years ago. I will also uh, talk about um, Eliot himself, the poem and the man, starting tonight, but filling in as we go, as we go along. I'll address the difficulty of the poem, and to do that, I'll I'll rely on on your impressions of those difficulties, which are common difficulties. And then, fourthly, I will I will talk to you about my approach to the poem, which is really um, intended for the ordinary reader. Um, not not for the scholar, but for the ordinary reader. Um, don't be put off by the title of tonight's class, The Misery of Life. Uh, April is the cruelest month, nor, in fact, by next week's uh, title, uh, The Specter of Death. Eliot is not in the final analysis, as one critic says, the poet of death. In fact, he's a seeker and he's searching, he's searching for for answers. And we'll see that as it goes along. But even in this darkest of poems, there are what I call whispers, whispers of hope and longings for peace, which you may or may not have picked up on yet. But uh, don't, don't, don't worry about that. 
1922, the world has come apart, no? Um, four years of great carnage after the Great War, the First World War, some 40 million casualties, including anywhere from 15 to 25 million deaths. Uh, widespread economic uh, disruptions, political collapses, um, and uh, people um, people really wondering, asking anew the questions, what what is the purpose of life? A real movement of kind of nihilism into that into that period. Um, Russian Revolution has taken place in 1917. The Austro-Hungarian Empire has collapsed, and also a growing uh, secularism and materialism in the way that people approach life, and what you might call a flattening of worldviews, worldviews which are increasingly indifferent to or even hostile towards certainly Christianity, but any uh, theistic religion. So given this historical context, it's not surprising that Eliot, He's an American expatriate living and working in England at the time. He finally settles on the title of the wasteland. Uh, and that's influenced largely by his reading of the Western canon, but not just the Western canon, also Eastern, Eastern philosophy, Eastern epics. Um, he's influenced uh, in some degree by, to some degree, by the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. Who's, who, who's, who uses that term, the wasteland, some 29 times in his book. Interestingly, Ezekiel says the following in chapter 33. He says, then they, the chosen people, will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and waste because of all their abominations which they have committed. So there's a connection in Eliot's mind um, and there are other sources of that title, The Wasteland, which we'll talk about. But there are connections in Eliot's mind, at least, between a, a people that have, that have rejected the divine, that have rejected God. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in weeks to come. What about Eliot himself? Thomas Stearns Eliot, born in um, St. Louis in 1888. Uh, and he is fundamentally um, one of the leading voices of the modernist movement, along with people like Ezra Pound and, and Virginia Woolf, um, James Joyce. But owing to his being a seeker, uh, alike in temperament to a Socrates or a St. Augustine, he eventually grows dissatisfied with the intellectual and artistic orthodoxies of his own time. And he moves beyond the tenets of modernism, ultimately rejecting them in favor of a classical Christianity. He becomes an Anglican. Um, and this is the first essential point to remember about Eliot and to keep in mind. Although he begins as a, as a modernist, he becomes, in the eyes of his fellow modernists, a kind of traitor or a turncoat. Which, by the way, explains why he is not favored among most current literary critics. He commits the cardinal sin of questioning their settled assumptions about reality. And this question ironically begins in the wasteland itself for those who have eyes to see. 
I say ironically because the poem on one level is hailed as a modernist manifesto, but it also contains within itself that which repudiates or will repudiate much of what modernism believes. The mature Eliot will become a kind of renegade, an outlier who does not keep step with his former artistic comrades, and accordingly he's criticized and punished by them. Let me provide one current example, and uh, Larissa, that's the first or second page of that uh, of that handout uh, titled uh, "How Did T.S. Eliot Go from Young and Wild to Old and Stodgy?" You see that on the um, second or third page? Yeah, if you would pull that up. Okay. So uh, this is a recent New York Times um, review. Um, just I think September eighth. There's a new uh, biography out uh, on. Elliot Crawford is the is the author, but this is a reviewer, and he asks the question: How did the young, forward-looking, avant-garde American poet become the stuffy, pious, conservative British citizen and Nobel laureate, bestriding the narrow literary world like a colossus? For readers partial to the daring rebel <clears throat> who wrote poems like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, Preludes and the wasteland, the trajectory this book traces may feel a bit dispir dispiriting, like watching a favorite punk musician turn into a Lawrence Welk fan fond of Fox News. And we can leave that up on the screen there, but let me just let me just say uh, say a few things about that. We immediately sense the mindset you no know, of of this of this reviewer. Uh, um, clearly. Um, he, he has those three qualitative uh, uh, qualifiers that are positive, no? Uh, Forward-thinking, young, avant-garde, followed by the three negatives, stuffy, pious, and, and conservative. Um, and he, uh, he uh, clearly, um, he clearly uh, makes, takes a shot at, uh, there's kind of a chronological snobbery going on there, is there not? Um, uh Lawrence Welk is not the greatest musician, but you can see the the kind of uh, the kind of attitude that's that's at work. But the crux of the matter, uh, what what explains this, follows in 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 the next in the next paragraph. He says, trapped in what surely must have been one of the most disastrous and unhappy marriages in literary history, consumed with his own misery and anxiety, disgusted by modernity's cultural disintegration. Eliot sought out stability and tradition wherever he could find them, chiefly in right-wing politics and the ordering structure of Christian faith. You can take that down, Larissa. Um, so you see what a what a bad boy Eliot becomes, right? He has the temerity, first of all, to reject leftist politics. And then, adding insult to injury, he rejects both agnosticism and atheism as mistaken worldviews. This is the later Eliot. Uh, so the subtext here is that no self-respecting artist or intellectual can be either a conservative or a Christian. It's just, the thought is just too, too horrible. <laughs> and this is 1920. And uh, some of the same, some of those same uh, views prevail today, and they've grown even stronger, you see. C.S. Lewis once said famously that the world is increasingly divided between what he calls supernaturalists and naturalists, right? Uh, 
um, those who believe that there is nothing beyond the natural world, and those who believe that there is. And this pretty much tells the story of our own time. You know? So um, so Eliot is uh, anyone who believes in the in the supernatural, that which transcends the, the material order, um, they're deluded. They're seeking after stability, or as the reviewer says, some ordering structure for their lives. And of course, if nothing beyond the natural exists, the naturalists are right. But if there's more than the natural to reality, the spiritual world, the soul, the afterlife, God himself, then they're wrong. So this is important because one reading, one's reading of the poem depends on whether one is in this naturalist camp or this supernaturalist camp. Um, and therefore, a lot of uh, a lot of criticism from the poem comes from those who uh, don't like the direction in, in which Eliot is is going, and certainly don't approve of what happens to Eliot in the ten years after the writing of the Wasteland, um, when when it, when he becomes when he becomes when he becomes Christian. You know? so the poem is is difficult, right? And for that, I, I just want to get a sampling from you on what uh, what are some of those difficulties in the reading of the poem um, and I say don't don't worry about them they're there um, and uh, to make sense of the poem we have to at least pay attention to what some of those difficulties are so if anybody would like to um, if anyone would like to sort of jump in what what is difficult about the poem what is difficult so I think um, one of the difficult things is kind of all the uh, Caleb, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. And I I have read studied this quite a bit. I did um, okay. I did T. S. Eliot for my lyric study at University of Dallas, and I actually memorized and recited Burial of the Dead for my panel. So <clears throat> I've delved into it, but it's been a while, and. I'm not as familiar with the other parts, but I think one of the things is all the, like the dissociative voices. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, you, it, it switches so fast in tone and, um, and, and voice uh, that you're kind of like, it's almost kind of like how he, it's like his ghost meter. You know, it's like as soon as you start to recognize that this is sort of iambic pentameter, it fades away. The voices are kind of the same. As yes. soon as you start to become familiar with the voice, it yes. switches or something, you know. So that's a great point. And, and I'm sure others have noticed that as well, um, that um, unlike previous poems, more traditional poems, there's not one or in the case of a poetic dialogue, two or, or three voices, but multiple voices. In fact, his first title to the poem, you ought to know, you may know this, Caleb, but um, he takes a phrase from, there we go, <laughs> he takes a phrase from uh, from Charles Dickens' novel, Our Mutual Friend, he do the police in different voices. So Eliot, Eliot first affixes that title to the poem, which really speaks to this multiplicity of voices that we find in the poem. Um, of course, that title is not is not substantial enough, as we'll come to see. The title of the wasteland actually sums up, um, in a more weighty fashion, what what the poem is about. But 
the voices, as Caleb said, are multiple. They change. It's often difficult to find who's speaking. Uh, and even within the first opening 20 lines of the poem, um, there could be as many as, as three or four voices there. Um, so there's not, in journalism, you have the, the necessity of, of attribution. He said, she said, Tom asserted. This is lacking in Eliot's poem. So that's one of the major difficulties. Good. What else? What other difficulties? It's dense. It's dense. I mean, it's, I mean, well, there's just, there's, there's so many, so many references and inferences to. Yes. I mean, just about, just about anything. Religious texts, plays, everything from stuff that now, you know, we consider classic and must reads to things that, Heck, I don't know if many people read in his time. That's right. And not being not being versed in half of it, it's you don't know if you just didn't read the line correctly, or if something <laughs> went over your head, or if it's just that right. that obtuse. Thank and, you. A, and a lot of those illusions are very like subtle and um, not very direct illusions either. Mm-hmm. Like the the hanged man. There's no hanged man. Fear death by water. Um, I believe is an allusion to the Tempest. Um, It is. Well, remember now, one of the things Eliot does is he will use, he will use an allusion or a reference indirect or direct to signify in multiple ways. So the Tempest Mm -hmm. is certainly one of those works to which he is, he is alluding. Um, So um, back to Anthony's point, was that you, Anthony, that was speaking? I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So denseness, it's dense because it's, it's just chocked full of literary historical illusions. If you were to if you were to do what scholars have done and try to track them down, um, it would uh, it would probably drive you mad. <laughs> well, actually, and this this might help. Yeah, I don't, I don't I don't know if I'm the slow kid in the class. This may help other people. Yeah, I found a website that has the entire the entire poem. Yes, and it actually has links to. Yes different parts of it you can just click on click on different lines and if there's a link there it'll it'll take you and kind of tell you what it's talking about sure that would be very helpful i have that but if you want to share it with us that would be that would be great yeah i I wish i would have had this back in college it would have yes it would have made my senior year so much easier (laughs) but one thing about elliot he's he's probably the most widely read learned poet of of our time so if you were to go through not just the wasteland but other poems what would you see? You would see allusions and references to, to the Bible, to the Hindu epics, to Homer, to Virgil, um, to St. John of the Cross, to Newman, to Dickens, to, to the English poets, to Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, and the list goes on. It's an enormous list. Um, and some people say, make the point that, well, Eliot is, is, is showing off. And uh, he may well be showing off a bit, but I think it goes back to what I said earlier about Eliot being a seeker, wanting to get to the bottom of reality and relying on the traditions, both East and West, to say things or use things that other poets and writers and philosophers have used as a way of trying to zero in on the meaning, get to the heart of the matter. so I think that's more the motive than simply than simply showing off. He's trying desperately to get to the meaning of of reality and relying on 
wonderful insights that poets and writers and philosophers in the past have had. Huh? Okay, so two two areas of difficulty. Any others? What others? Um, I think besides the the multiplicity of voices and the insane like hypertextuality of the text that people have yeah. commented on, there's also the problem of Eliot's notes on the poem. So yes. what I find difficult about them is that he'll make an illusion or a reference and, you know, your handy dandy like compendium might give an explanation, but then he'll yes. have a note on that line that yes. actually kind of diverts your attention to something that seems completely different from what you were expecting. Like, in his it's so then he's making these like double illusions so then there's the illusion that you kind of expect or that might be more commonplace or easier to spot but then he also puts in these strange like very cryptic notes um yeah. that are that yeah just kind of increase it rather than clarifying they sometimes like raise more questions than they answer sure because he's he he's he's using the he has you might say um he has what you might call an, a magpie intellect, huh? which means that, you know, the magpie bird picks up anything it can find, paper, foil, pieces of trash. Well, Eliot's mind uh, is a magpie intellect in that his wide reading, he's he's pulled things from, from a wide array of reading, which are there kind of at the ready. And when he's in, when he's writing poetry, various various phrases or images come to mind. And then he's trying to use them uh, in a way that sometimes we can't follow. Um, uh, so um, one, of the, one of the takeaway points uh, 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 of the notes and the denseness and the, and the very, various allusions, they can be helpful, but I'm gonna suggest that they're not absolutely necessary to understand the fullness of the poem. They can help. Sometimes they throw us off track, as you say. Um, um, but in any case, they, 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 can, uh, they can add to our knowledge, but they can also take away from the, from the synoptic look at, at the whole poem. Huh? And it's better to try in, in the reading of the poem and in listening to the poem, it's better to look for strands and strains and threads of meaning that are consistent throughout the poem, trying to identify that. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Any other one, any other uh, uh, reasons for difficulty? These are the main ones, and I'm glad you picked up on these. Any others? Maybe just a few other. This is Joe. A few other kind of okay. surface surface details of. Yes. Uh, not just the the deep illusions, but just right on the on the top, the the change of languages, wow. um, and other other things like the references to um, uh, kind of supernaturalist things. I mean, he definitely you know he knew of the the tarot and horoscopes and stuff like that. It 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 feels it feels to me like you know T. S. Eliot wrote this for T. S. Eliot. Like you, you <laughs> to to read this and fully understand it without doing any prep, you have to have his exact mind uh with all of the very like you said very broadly read and and uh sure magpied kind of intellect uh yes. otherwise you, you got work <laughs> you have work to do exactly yeah. uh, but that certainly is another area the languages from german to french to to provencal to sanskrit at the end of the poem 
there's Greek, uh, there's Greek in the epigram, which we'll talk about at a later point. So the languages are also there. And remember, too, this poem, as it was originally conceived uh, by Eliot, was nearly twice twice the length. Um, and Ezra Pound, his fellow modernist poet, um, operated, as it were, on the poem and chopped out large sections of the poem, which Eliot, owing to his respect for Pound, allowed to happen. Some of those changes were quite were quite good. For instance, um, this powerful opening of the wasteland was preceded by some 20 or 25 lines about an ordinary conversation in contemporary, then contemporary England. Um, I'm not quite sure of the connection there, but it actually it actually served him well to begin with these lines and having after having excised those first 20 or 25. Um, so the languages are there. There's also the issue of, of modernist uh, stream of consciousness. If you've read James Joyce, the writer knows where he's going and what's he, what he wants to do, but clarity, <laughs> clarity for the reader is not necessarily um, a priority, right? So that all of these things make it, make it difficult. Um, but as I said, what he's trying to do with, with all of this is to diagnose the problem of the human condition, you no, know, and to explore what it's like to be a human being living at the beginning of the 20th century. So remember that throughout, throughout our discussion in these classes. Now, I say diagnosis. I put that in the title of the course. Um, he may not have set out to diagnose things in, 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 a, in, a, in a direct way. In fact, he kind of downplayed the wasteland later in life. He called it a piece of ryth rhythmical grumbling, you know, which was a, 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 an understatement to say the least. But, but if not diagnosis, at least keen observation on the on the human condition, uh, which which for Eliot, as a as a as a student of classical literature and the tradition, human nature does not does not change, you no. Know? Um, and that's one of the things he's dealing with in his in his discussion with uh, with the modernists back back and forth. Um, so good. Those are the difficulties. Um, we can we can come back to some of them as as we move along. Um, but remember, he's trying to get to the heart of reality and pulling out all the stops to get there. So he's he's alluding, he's referring, he's he's using using this tradition and that tradition, this image. And the other, um, and he's trying to get there. Now, the fourth and final topic uh, of this introduction, before moving into the poem, um, what is my approach? You know, I've been reflecting on the poem and Eliot's other poem poems now for decades, uh, and I'm aware of the criticism among scholars and increasingly uh, dissatisfied, you might say, with the usual approach. Some of which is useful. But um, more recently, the, the major attempt has been to psychoanalyze Eliot, uh, to talk about his personal failings and difficulties. And I think the reason for that, as I suggested before, is that he's out of step with current political and uh, philosophical orthodoxies, no? Um, that he once declared himself a monarchist in politics and a classicist in literature was more than enough to earn him a, a pink slip 
from those who now claim to rule the Republic of Letters. And their rule, that rule is notoriously tyrannical. He's often branded with any number of negative labels, and there have been whole books written on this, that he's racist, that he's anti-Semite, that he's misogynist, to name a few. And there's more than enough written on all this and evidence, some of it convincing, that he is guilty as charged of these and other human faults and failings. But my response, my re- approach to this is, is so what? <laughs> Let those who are without sin, right? Those who are perfect in their own estimation be the ones to cast the first stone. And it also raises the question, should the work of creative artists, whether writers, poets, composers, painters, should it really be judged solely on the base of politics, no? Or personal morals? And in any case, which morality or moral system should be invoked? There are any number of them that are at work in our own time. The great, um, the great apologist Fulton Sheen, he once said that uh, increasingly we are living in a time where people hold to the doctrine of immaculate conception conceived without sin, not with respect to the mother of God, but rather with respect to themselves, right? And those who consider themselves sinless, they're also the very same who are quick to find fault in others and slow to offer mercy. And I think as an aside, I think that could be the problem with cancel culture in general, no? That some are horrified and scandalized by the sins of others because they are somehow convinced of their own moral superiority. So that won't be my approach to, to psychoanalyze. He he did indeed have a, a painful a painful marriage, a troubled marriage. He had great bouts of anxiety and depression. He spent time in in mental health clinics and sanitariums, huh? um, and that certainly has a bearing on his work. But really, my approach is that I find these peripheral to the main questions about the wasteland. And 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 what are those questions in in my approach? Well, for starters, what what is the what is the poem's essential message and meaning? You know, what does it assert about reality and the human condition? What does the poem seek? What, if anything, does it find? What does it teach? What does the poem teach? And by the way, the notion of literature teaching being didactic is is a, is of course not um not acceptable in 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 academic quarters today um but poetry of the past literature of the past um intentionally did teach uh so that's good to remember so as you reread um and reflect on the poem ask yourself ask yourself these questions does it have insofar as you can understand it does it have the ring of truth no um does it square with your own experience of life? Does it offer insights about reality? Does it speak to your heart and soul? And if so, what what does it what does it say? Um, and and before I give you my own initial take on Eliot as a fourteen and fifteen year old reading it, um, let's let's talk in very general terms about your impressions of the poem, apart from the difficulty, which we've already touched on. What 
what are you, what are you gleaning from the poem in, in in the in the broadest sense thus far? Um, anyone? Sure. Um, I one of the things I um, am very interested in the poem is um, kind of going from the title, the wasteland, and um, thinking about what that means i'm going to read ezekiel 33 later thank you for that um but i'm fascinated with the um with the journey to the chapel perilous stories um mm -hmm. like robert browning uh and even you know contemporary ones like stephen king's dark tower series or um interestingly enough the disney movie moana is a journey to the chapel perilous story um and and I'm, and you know, and he talks about at the end that um, Prince Aquitaine comes to the ruined tower, I think is what it is. Nice. Um, and this idea that um, that modernity is like a wasteland and mm -hmm. something has, we need some kind of champion um, to fix it. Yes. And um, I'm fascinated with that. And I see how that really resonates with our culture and stuff today. Um, mm -hmm you know, it, 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 that is something about the poem that really resonates with me a lot. So the poem, the poem, one, one thing you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that the poem clearly speaks about the, the state of things as they are. And you could say it's a, a diagnosis of modernity, but in fact, it's a diagnosis of the human condition, even right. pre-modernity. Right. But what's involved is a, is a journey, a quest, as it were, to find some rem remedy some solution uh, to find a a healer for the land uh in christian terms to find to find a savior uh, a champion right. as you say right. and that clearly is one of the main um movements of the poem very good other other first impressions and they can be something something uh minor or personal or whatever you've uh wrote in on who else Mine's in a, a similar vein, actually. It was, uh, I had the, um, the good fortune to be reading Percival uh, by Christian Detroit right when I started this. So the Fisher King was one yes. that really stood out. And again, a, a reinforcement of that idea that this, this is somehow a, a condition that England is perpetually in and trying to get out of and seeking for the Holy Grail while the Fisher King is out fishing in front of his wasteland, you know. Yes. Uh, so that was very striking. Yes. And by the way, his his jumping around, not just in languages from one culture and country to another, but his jumping around chronologically from from past to present, from uh, pagan cultures to Christian cultures to medieval culture is another way, I suggest, of Eliot saying this, this is the human problem. You no, know? and it's especially apparent in the aftermath of the terrible war, 1914-1918. But it's also it's also been part of the human story from from the beginning. Yes, yes. Me? What? Hi, I'm Anne. I'm new. Hi, uh, well, one thing. Thank you. One thing that connected with me is this idea that living is going to be painful and it's actually cruel of the spring to wake us up again because yes. it's so it's so painful to remember the tragedy and it's also so painful to remember the beauty that was before that tragedy 
And I just think it's really beautiful the way he said that because yes. after you've had some tragedies, both those things are very painful. Remembering exactly. the bad things and the beautiful things that were lost. Yes, thank you, Anne. Good point. What else? First impressions. Um, I've always been really like kind of haunted by the lines um, where he when he says. Um, the crowd flowed over London Bridge so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Yes. And then the, I don't remember the exact next line, but something about like every person was like looking towards their feet and just shuffle, shuffling along. Um, and it's it's always been a very personal one for me because I live in London, Ontario, the second coolest London. Um, yes. And uh, uh, I just being on campus at my university kind of seeing crowds of students like flowing over the bridges to get into our school. And they're all just staring down at their cell phones. And it's like the, the walking dead kind of um, like there's, uh, I know they didn't have cell phones obviously in Elliot's time, but also like having done um, some pro-life work and that, that line of like, I had not thought death had undone so many of like how when you do pro-life work, you just, you see how many people have been impacted by, um abortion and other tragedies um so yeah those lines have just always like kind of haunted me since i since i initially read the poem mm -hmm. it's an interesting point because some of the some of the lines and the images of the wasteland even people who have read it just once and maybe superficially they have a way of embedding themselves <laughs> into our consciousness based on our own experience of life which is which is what you're saying, which is which is a great point. Um, yeah, and we'll talk in, in in next week. We'll talk more about this main strand, which I title uh, the specter of death. We'll talk more more about that. A uh, few other first impressions of the poem. Feel free to jump in. Well, I uh, I've always liked the imagery in the poem that is dealing with like at the beginning, he says, what are the roots that clutch the branches? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? So I like that he's trying to find something that's left in like the rubble literally of, you know, war, but also he has the later imagery about the, the fragments to shore against the ruins and all of that. So like, what can we, what, what do we still have that can protect us from the desolation, I guess? Yes. And his fellow, many of his fellow modernists, because they're materialists or agnostic or atheist, um, when when Eliot, even in the wasteland, starts to veer towards a solution, in their mind, he's he's entering into a kind of self-delusion, you see, huh? because they dismiss that as the as the naturalist would dismiss that. But clearly he's back to the back to the point made earlier of his being quintessentially a seeker. He, he, he wants to get to the bottom of things. He's not satisfied. And the wasteland, the writing of the wasteland or the, the, the wrestling with the images and the, and the matter of the wasteland, it's as if he, he's peeling away one layer of reality after another and looking for the, for the true explanation of things. And he's not satisfied with anything less than that. So that's a, that's a great point. Um, Good. These are all good. A couple of questions up here. Um, 
fishing is always a hopeful endeavor. That's certainly true. <laughs> and there is there's something positive associated with fishing. Um, another uh, Stan says the U.S. war also started in civil war also started in April. And that's true. There are some references, in fact, allusions indirect to a poem by uh, Walt Whitman on the death of Lincoln, which was in April at the end of the Civil War. So uh, thanks for those thanks for those comments itself. Now, uh, to the poem itself and the fo focus of this evening's class, uh, the misery of life, April is the cruelest month. Um, let me say a few things about that. Um, Number one, it's in a section of the poem, uh, the first section of the poem, which is titled The Burial of the Dead. Uh, so we know right away that dead, death, uh, death is a theme. But that phrase comes directly from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and it's the funeral service for, for the dead. Uh, so even in the title, here's Eliot looking at something which on, on the surface is funereal and dark, but of course the burial service in the Anglican church as in any Christian church um, is also the undercurrent there is the possibility no, of resurrection. Hmm? So even, even at the beginning of the poem, we, we see that. Um, let's, let's listen uh, if I can find it on my, on my audible. And by the way, Larissa, thanks for, thanks for uh, loading uh, on on the uh, uh, in the email, the poem uh, read by T. S. Eliot, which is worth listening to, um, despite his sometimes forced British accent, <laughs> uh, it's still worth listening to because it's always worth lis listening to the um, uh, the the poet uh, read his own poetry. But let's just listen. This is a this is another version from um, the actor Jeremy Irons. And uh, just to the opening lines, and actually this this reading or rendering, uh, they they use two voices. They use a second voice with an actress whose name I, I, I forget. Let's listen to this. Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Can you hear it? One, the burial of the dead. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Summer surprised us, coming over the Starnbergersee with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Inga keine Russin, stamm aus Litauen, echt Deutsch. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousin's, he took me out on a sled, and I was frightened. He said, Murray, Murray, hold on tight, and down we went. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. Okay. Is everyone here? I've lost. There we go. Good. Um, so before we get into the, the, the meaning of the cruelty of April, which one of you touched upon already, 
Um, just to, to reiterate some of the stylistic issues, um, do you notice how the voice, the speaker, uh, the speakers, as we say, change? At least one part of the poem seems to be a recollection of a, of a woman from noble family thinking back on her youth in, uh, in uh, Central Europe. You know? um, but the beginning, I'd say the first uh, four lines and the last two, they have a different feel to them, no? Uh, how do they feel differently? What what about them seems different to you? From what from what goes in between? How are they different? I think one is they're like temporally different. Like April is the cruelest month versus someone um, kind of recollecting on the past. Okay, so there's a difference in 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 verb tense in time. Good. Mm-hmm. What else? It seems more, I don't know if aphoristic is the right word, but like like a person's trying to establish something with authority, like speak, I'm speaking authoritatively. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know if aphoristic is the right word, but yeah. just that idea of like they're trying to kind of assert something, whereas the rest of it's more like a memory. I think you're on the right track. Um, it's it. I, I would actually use the 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 adjective prophetic. No, there's something there's something clearly being being spoken with authority, as you say, at the beginning and and even at the end. Whereas the middle it has to do with particular recollections of of conversation. No, um, um, it's interesting to note uh, the the poem is titled "The Wasteland." Uh, and yet these opening lines talk quite a bit about moisture, <laughs> no summer, summer rain coming in, snow, and so on and so forth, which are immediately undercut in what follows, and we'll talk about that at a later at a later point. Um, but there's that. There's also the style to keep in mind that occasionally Eliot will use only very occasionally in the wasteland. He will use rhyme, but otherwise it's unrhymed verse. Um, it's also not end stop. The, the lines don't typically stop at the end of the, the printed line. They continue. Um, another another uh, feature, you might say, of, of, the, of the verse. So the question, the first question, obviously, we need to deal with is what is so, what is so cruel about April? I lived in England for five years. And April was always a glorious, a glorious time of year, you know. Um, and English poetry is filled with references to April, to the spring being being beautiful. Oh, to be in England uh, now that April's there, Robert Browning tells us in the 19th century. Um, and Shakespeare uh, earlier, 1590s or thereabouts, talks about, quote, April dressed in all his trim hath put a spirit of youth in everything, no? But what's really in foremost in Eliot's mind, I think, in writing this is the opening passage from, from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, no? Um, and if you, Larissa, have that, that uh, next uh, page that you can put up, I'll read the first portion of it, which is a translation from the Middle English, which appears below. So, when April with his showers sweet with fruit, the draught of March has pierced to the root, 
and bathed each vein with liquor that has power to generate therein and sire the flower. When Zephyr also has with his sweet breath quickened again in every holt and heath, the tender shoots and buds and the young sun into the ram one half his course has run and many little birds make melody. And Chaucer's Chaucer's version below is is beautiful. Uh, You can read it on your own if you haven't read it before. But the point is here in the year 1400, the middle of of the the growth or the movement of Christianity in, in England, April is traditionally associated with spring and with youth. You can take that down, Marissa, thank you. Um, it's a time of rebirth and generation, right? Uh, a, a return of light to the land, uh, green grass, blossoming flowers, the birdie of the beauty of bird song. And so the question is, what makes it cruel for Elliot? Um, well, and, it, and it's a time when you start pilgrimages too. It's also a time it's a time to start a journey. Yes, and we'll uh, we'll talk about that in an interesting sort of preview of that is. Um, when we talk about the absence of God uh, and these same down-faced uh, sullen commuters who are crossing over London Bridge, they're actually moving, they're moving in the opposite direction of the spiritual heart of England, which is Canterbury. And where are they moving? If you know London, they're moving into the financial center of the city. Yeah? So there's a completely different focus. We'll, we'll get to that later. But certainly, um, uh, certainly, uh, it's a time. Uh, it's a play, It's a time of pilgrimage for Chaucer. Certainly, that's how he begins the Canterbury Tales. Um, so, so for Eliot, then let's let's try to decipher and figure out what what's cruel about it. Why does he qualify April traditionally associated with youth and and rebirth and spring with cruelty? What what's he up to here? Um, Well, I don't know if this is far-fetched. This is something that I think one of my profs said was that coming out of World War I, you've got like the, um, what are they called? Like the trench warfare and bodies would have been like frozen into the mud when they were, when they like corpses. And then when springtime came and there was the thaw, you've got this like kind of nasty rising up of of corpses in in the ground um so that was one image that they said at least it at least might have been kind of referring to yeah no that's not far-fetched at all he he certainly has that in mind right as on on a a, you might say on a minor as a minor note that's certainly there but remember now he's he's driving towards towards universals and towards fullness of meaning why is april why is April cruel? It's cruel because of the recollection of these these dead bodies resulting from the terrible trench warfare of the of the first world war. But more broadly, why why is it cruel? Well, what, what's cruel about it? I think you know. I think if you um, look at and kind of add on the line, um, "Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow," and compare it to that, um, I think. One of the problems of the modernists and the materialists is uh, the supernatural world is real. And so to believe in only the material, you have to constantly run away 
from that. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, and I think, I think you see that today all the time, you know, our, 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 our species has tried for tens of thousands of years to become physically comfortable. Um, and now we basically are more or less. And so what do we do? Um, the materialists, they run away from, uh, now they're running away from like, um, they're running, trying to find emotional comfort and psychological comfort now. And so you can be whatever you can say, whatever you, you know, you are, whatever you say you are. And I think there's a similar thing here is like, kind of like what you said, you know, when the snow melts away and you actually see everything around you and, um, you know, you, and, and the, and the beauty of it too, because, you know, beauty is where it's easiest to see God. <laughs> um, maybe not the most profound place to see God, but it is a, um, it, it is the easiest place to see God probably. And so I think, yeah, there's like a running away. And so it's like a, it's painful to have mm -hmm. to, uh, if you're, if you're trying to insulate yourself from uh, a supernatural meaning, being exposed to it, you it is, is painful for those people, I think. No, good point. What else? Anything else to explain the cruelty? Yeah, for me, I mean, April is also a good Friday. Oh, go ahead. April has, um, it's Easter, but then, I mean, it, it was Passion Week. Yep. Yeah, April, April is not only associated with pilgrimage and the, the rebirth of the natural world, Christians certainly associate with, with Easter. Right, the feast of the resurrection. So that's certainly that's certainly the case, um, and that would be um, that would be cruel for a mindset that doesn't believe in the possibility of resurrection. No, um, good. There was someone else who, who we cut off there. Who else? Oh, that was me. I, I was actually going to start with this exactly yeah. the same comment. So that was okay. perfect. Um, but I was thinking much much more maybe human than that. Um, if the whole poem is called the wasteland, I'm looking at this from a you know a new fresh read of it. If the poem is called the wasteland, if if modernity is a wasteland, then start starting a new uh, cycle of seasons into it could then be cruel. It's like the morning is is dawn is beautiful and and bright and uh, uh, and bracing, but if you're depressed, it's not. Oh God, you know. Oh God, what a what another day! It's oh God, another day. Uh, beauty can be pain if yep. you're not in the mindset for it. Yes, and in the natural in the natural scheme of things, the dawn comes, but every day the darkness follows. And in the course of the year, the spring does come, but every year uh, the season of autumn and winter recurs again. You no. Know? Um, so it it brings us April, depending on what our mindset is, what our belief is, what our worldview is. April is cruel because it brings us painfully back to the realization that the natural cycle, what is the natural cycle? Well, it's birth, growth, maturity, decline, death. That's the natural cycle. The flower blooms today is fresh and beautiful. But but it soon fades, falls again to earth. No, so April thus becomes a, a powerful image of the natural world, and also of the limitations of natural human life. No, um, after his conversion uh, to Anglican Christianity, about a decade later, after the wasteland, 
Eliot will treat of the same theme, and he will also uh, he will repeat other themes that he raises in the wasteland, and he will um, he will have the same theme with a slightly different uh, a slightly different additional uh, wrinkle, as it were. And this is, uh, uh, if you would, um, Larissa, the the line that begins the eagle soars in the summit of heaven. You see that on our on our handout. There we go. So a little bit above that. Uh, go. There we go. So the eagle soars in the summit of heaven. The hunter with his dogs pursues his circuit. Oh, perpetual revolution of configured stars. Oh, perpetual recurrence of determined seasons. A world of spring and autumn, birth and dying. The endless cycle of idea and action. Endless invention endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion but not of stillness, knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. And all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death, but nearness to death known nearer to God. I'll put that down now. Thanks, Marissa. Um, so what Eliot is here lamenting, you know, in this later more uh, more mature poem, at least in terms of his own personal maturity, he's lamenting a pagan view of history, no? A pagan view of life, which is cyclical. It's a closed circle, as it were, in which there's no relief, ultimately. Um, There's no escape. It's a worldview, as Eliot comes to believe, that is ignorant of the word, ignorant of Christ, and distant from God. And this Worldview brings with it a kind of unrelenting weariness, you might say. It becomes unbearable to those who have the honesty or sensitivity to give it any thought. Without God, uh, without a conviction that there is anything more than this natural life, the options on how to live are reduced, right? One of the options is is uh, is denial. Huh? That's why the snow is forgetful. It's covering up that reality of what, again, will remind us of the cycle, no? So denial or uh, stoicism in the the stiff upper lip approach to life. I remember being at a a secular, one one place where I taught college, and there was a secular funeral service. And, um, you know, we went to to honor our colleague who died, who died young. but it was it ended pathetically with the song from Monty Python's Life of Brian, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, which uh if you if you know the lyrics, it's it's really quite quite devastating. But it's 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 the summation of, of a life where there's no conviction, no possibility, no hope of of resurrection. So stoic stoicism is one approach, or hedonism, right? as expressed by a line from pagan poetry quoted by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So those are the, those are the approaches that help us deal with um, this worldview, which is shorn of any possibility of, of, um, of life, of afterlife. So it largely, this is what largely, I think probably most importantly, accounts for the misery of life, uh, 
obviously all the pain and suffering and hardships, all the crosses that we we are called to bear, the loss of loved ones, sickness, so on and so forth. But it's really at the bottom, no, it's the realization that life is brief, that it's ephemeral, that it's a passing pageant, no, Um, uh, signifying nothing, as Shakespeare's Macbeth puts it, no, that we are destined to, to dust, that there's nothing beyond the present earthly existence. And this, of course, is not it's not a Christian view, either of life or, or of history. The Christian view is not cyclical, but it's linear, right? There's a, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end with a supernatural life, the life of the soul that transcends nature and therefore liberates us from this uh, cycle of birth and death. Uh, so, so throughout his early years, Eliot will be haunted by thoughts of the temporal and the eternal. And even in his, even in his earliest writings, uh, writings as a young, as a teenager, he will long for what is, what is permanent, you no? Know? What is reliable, what is rock solid. And he will identify that as, as the absolute, uppercase to describe a being that is necessary and not contingent, namely, namely God. Here's a stanza, which I think you have on the handout, too, from uh, a pre-Wasteland poem. I think he wrote this when he was 16. Um, It begins with the line, Larissa, and life a little bald and gray. So, and life a little bald and gray, languid, fastidious, and bland, waits, hats and gloves in hand, punctilious of tie and suit, somewhat impatient of delay on the doorstep of the absolute. And this this final couplet, no, it serves to sum up, up the young Eliot. He's the that quintessential seeker. Notice that the speaker of the poem is only on the doorstep, right? He hasn't yet passed through the door, has not yet entered and experienced the absolute. But somehow he suspects, even the younger Eliot, that the absolute is real. It's not simply a mirage or a fantasy. And he's impatient to know this absolute, convinced that life, the fullness of life, cannot be found apart from this experience. And so the speaker waits, as Eliot himself seems to wait in the wasteland on the doorstep of of the absolute. Um, Okay, we could put that down now. Uh, Larissa, thank you. Comments on that or questions uh, so far, further thoughts. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.